Section 2 of The Wit of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria de Fatima da Silva. The Wit of Women by Kate Sanborn. Humor of Literary English Women. In reviewing the bon mot of Stella, whom Swift pronounced the most witty woman he had ever known, it seems that we are improving. I will give but two of her sayings, which were so carefully preserved by her friend. When she was extremely ill, her physician said, Madam, you are near the bottom of the hill, but we will endeavor to get you up again. She answered, Doctor, I fear she'll be out of breath before I get up to the top. After she had been eating some sweet thing, a little of it happened to stick on her lips. A gentleman told her of it, and offered to lick it off. She said, No, sir, I thank you. I have a tongue of my own. Compare these with the wit of George Eliot, or the irony of Miss Phelps. Some of Jane Taylor's stories and poems were formerly regarded as humorous, for instance, the discontented pendulum and the philosopher's scales. They do not now raise the faintest smile. Fanny Burney's novels were considered immensely humorous and diverting in their day. Burke complimented her on her natural vein of humor, and another eminent critic speaks of her sarcasm, drollery, and humor. But it would be almost impossible to find a passage for quotation that would now satisfy on these points. Even Jane Austen's novels, which strangely retain their hold on the public taste, are tedious to those who dare to think for themselves and forget Macaulay's verdict. Mrs. Barbold, in her poem on Washing Day, shows a capacity seldom exercised for seeing the humorous side of everyday miseries. Woe to the friend whose evil stars have urged him forth to claim, on such a day, the hospitable rites. Looks, blank at best, and stinted courtesy, shall he receive. Vainly he feeds his hopes, with dinner of roast chicken, savoury pie, or tart, or pudding. Pudding he nor tart that day shall eat, nor, though the husband try, mending what can't be helped, to kindle mirth, from cheer deficient shall his consort's brow cheer up propitious. The unlucky guest in silence dines and early slinks away. But her style is too stiff and stately for every day. There were many literary English women who had undoubted humor. Hannah Moore did get unendurably pokey, narrow, and solemn in her last days, and not a little sanctimonious, and we naturally think of her as an aged spinster with black mitts, cockscrew curls, and a mob cap, always writing or presenting a tedious tract, forgetting her brilliant youth, when she was quite good enough and lively too. She was a perennial favourite in London, meeting all the notables, the special pet of Dr. Johnson, Davy Garrick, and Horace Walpole, who called her his 
holy hannah but admired and honoured her corresponding with her through a long life she was then full of spirit and humour a versatile talent an extract from her sister's lively letter shows that hannah could hold her own with the ursa major of literature tuesday evening we drank tea at sir joshua's with dr johnson hannah is certainly a great favourite she was placed next to him and they had the entire conversation to themselves they were both in remarkably high spirits it was certainly her lucky night i never heard her say so many good things the old genius was extremely jocular and the young one very pleasant you would have imagined we had been at some comedy had you heard our peals of laughter they indeed tried which could pepper the highest and it is not clear to me that the lexicographer was really the highest seasoner and how deliciously does she set out the absurdity then prevailing and seen now in editions of shakespeare and chaucer of writing books the bulk of which consists of notes with only a line or two at the top of each page of the original text it seems that a merry party at dr kennicott's had each adopted the name of some animal dr k was the elephant mrs k dromedary miss adams antelope and h moore rhinoceros hampton december twenty fourth seventeen twenty eight dear dromy pray send word if auntie is come and also how l does to your very affectionate riney the following notes on the above epistle are by a commentator of the latter end of the nineteenth century this epistle is all that is come down to us of this voluminous author and is probably the only thing she ever wrote that was worth preserving or which might reasonably expect to reach posterity her name is only presented to us in some beautiful syllables written by the best latin poet of his time bishop louth jomi from the termination of this address it seems to have been written to a woman though there is no internal evidence to support this hypothesis the best critics are much puzzled about the orthography of this abbreviation watonius another skilful etymologist contend that it ought to be spelled drummy being addressed to a lady who was probably fond of warlike instruments and who had a singular predilection for a cannon drummy say they was a tender diminutive of drum as the best authors in their more familiar writings now begin to use gunny for gun but hardius a contemporary critic contends with more probability that it ought to be written drome from hippodrome a learned leech and elegant bard of bath having left it on record that this lady spent much of her time at the riding school being a very exquisite judge of horsemanship colmanus and horatius strawberryenses insist that it ought to be written dromo in reference to the dromo soracius of the latin dramatist ante scaliger two d says this name simply signifies the appellation of uncle's wife 
and not to be written ante. But here again are various readings. Philologists of yet greater name affirm that it was meant to designate preeminence and therefore ought to be written ante, A-N-T-E, before from the Latin, a language now pretty well forgotten, though the authors who wrote in it are still preserved in French translations. The younger Madame Dacier insists that this lady was against all men and that it ought to be spelled anti, A-N-T-I. But this Canicotus, a rabbi of the most recondite learning, with much critical wrath, vehemently contradicts, affirming it to have been impossible she could have been against mankind, whom all mankind admired. He adds that anti, A-N-T-E, is for antelope and is emblematically used to express an elegant and slender animal, or that it is an elongation of ant, A-N-T, the emblem of virtuous citizenship. And so she continues her comments to close of notes. Mrs. Gaskell's Cranford is full of the most delicate but veritable humour, as her allusion to the genteel and cheerful poverty of the lady, who, in giving a tea-party, now sat in state, pretending not to know what cakes were sent up, though she knew, and we knew, and she knew that we knew, and we knew that she knew, that we knew she had been busy all the morning making tea-bread and sponge-cakes. The humour of Mary Russell Mitford, quiet and delectable, must not be forgotten. We will sympathise with her woes as she describes a visitation, from the talking lady. Ben Johnson has a play called The Silent Woman, who turns out, as might be expected, to be no woman at all, nothing, as Master Slender said, but a great lubberly boy, thereby, as I apprehend, discourteously presuming that a silent woman is a non-entity. If the learned dramatist thus happily prepared and predisposed had happened to fall in with such a specimen of female loquacity as I have just parted with, he might perhaps have given us a pendant to his picture in The Talking Lady. Pity but he had. He would have done her justice, which I could not at any time, least of all now. I am too much stunned, too much like one escaped from a belfry on a coronation day. I am just resting from the fatigue of four days hard listening, four snowy, sleety, rainy days, days of every variety of falling weather, all of them too bad to admit the possibility that any petticoated thing, were she as hardy as a scotch fir, should stir out. Four days chained by sad civility to that fireside, once so quiet and again cheering thought, again I trust, to be so, when the echo of that visitor's incessant tongue shall have died away. She took us in her way from London to the west of England, and being, as she wrote, not quite well, not equal to much company, prayed that no other guest might be admitted, so that she might have the pleasure of our conversation all to herself, ours as if it were possible for any of us to slide in a word edgewise and especially enjoy the gratification of talking over old times 
with the master of the house, her countryman. Such was the promise of her letter, and to the letter it has been kept. All the news and scandal of a large county forty years ago, and a hundred years before, and ever since. All the marriages, deaths, births, elopements, lawsuits, and casualties of her own times, her fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, nephews, and grandnephews, has she detailed with a minuteness, an accuracy, a prodigality of learning, a profuseness of proper names, a pedantry of locality, which would excite the envy of a county historian, a king at arms, or even a Scotch novelist. Her knowledge is most astonishing, but the most astonishing part of all is how she came by that knowledge. It should seem, to listen to her, as if at some time of her life she must have listened herself. And yet her countryman declares that in the forty years he has known her, no such event has occurred. And she knows new news, too. It must be intuition. The very weather is not a safe subject. Her memory is a perpetual register of hard frosts and long droughts and high winds and terrible storms, with all the evils that followed in their train, and all the personal events connected with them, so that if you happen to remark that clouds are come up, and you fear it may rain, she replies, Aye, it is just such a morning as three and thirty years ago, when my poor cousin was married. You remember my cousin Barbara. She married so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And then comes the whole pedigree of the bridegroom, the amount of the settlements, and the reading and signing them overnight. A description of the wedding dresses in the style of Sir Charles Grandison, and how much the bride's gown cost per yard. The names, residences, and a short subsequent history of the bridesmaids and men. The gentleman who gave the bride away, and the clergyman who performed the ceremony, with a learned antiquarian digression relative to the church. Then the setting out in procession, the marriage, the kissing, the crying, the breakfasting, the drawing the cake through the ring, and finally the bridal excursion, which brings us back again, at an hour's end, to the starting post, the weather, and the whole story of the sopping, the drying, the clothes spoiling, the cold catching, and all the small evils of a summer shower. By this time it rains, and she sits down to a pathetic seesaw of conjectures on the chance of Mrs. Smith's having set out for her daily walk, or the possibility that Dr. Brown may have ventured to visit his patients in his jig, and the certainty that Lady Green's new housemaid would come from London on the outside of the coach. I wonder if she had happened to be married, how many husbands she would have talked to death. It is certain that none of her relatives are long-lived, after she comes to reside with them. Father, mother, uncle, sister, brother, two nephews, and one niece, all these have successively passed away, though a healthy race, and with no visible disorder, except but we must not be uncharitable. Mary Ferrier, the Scotch novelist, was gifted with genial wit and a quick sense of the ludicrous. Walter Scott admired her greatly, and as a lively guest at Abbotsford, 
she did much to relieve the sadness of his last days he said of her she is a gifted personage having besides her great talents conversation the least exigeant of any author female at least whom i have ever seen among the long list i have encountered simple and full of humor and exceedingly ready at repartee and all this without the least affectation of the blue stocking the general strain of her writing relates to the foibles and oddities of mankind and no one has drawn them with greater breath of comic humor or effect her scenes often resemble the style of our best old comedies and she may boast like foot of adding many new and original characters to the stock of our comic literature here is one of her admirably drawn portraits the sensible woman miss jackie the senior of the trio was what is reckoned a very sensible woman which generally means a very disagreeable obstinate illiberal direct of all men women and children a sort of superintendent of all actions time and place with unquestioned authority to arraign judge and condemn upon the statutes of her own supposed sense most country parishes have their sensible woman who lays down the law on all affairs spiritual and temporal miss jackie stood unrivalled as the sensible woman of glenfern she had attained this eminence partly from having a little more understanding than her sisters but principally from her dictatorial manner and the pompous decisive tone in which she delivered the most commonplace truths at home her supremacy in all matters of sense was perfectly established and thence the infection like other superstitions had spread over the whole neighborhood as a sensible woman she regulated the family which she took care to let everybody hear she was a sort of postmistress general a detector of all abuses and impositions and deemed it her prerogative to be consulted about all the useful and useless things which everybody else could have done as well she was liberal of her advice to the poor always enforcing upon them the iniquity of idleness but doing nothing for them in the way of employment strict economy being one of the many points in which she was particularly sensible the consequence was that while she was lecturing half the poor women in the parish for their idleness the bread was kept out of their mouths by the incessant carding of wool and knitting of stockings and spinning and reeling and winding and burning that went on among the ladies themselves and by the by miss jackie is not the only sensible woman who thinks she is acting a meritorious part when she converts what ought to be the portion of the poor into the employment of the affluent in short miss jackie was all over sense a skilful physiognomist would at a single glance have detected the sensible woman in the erect head the compressed lips, square elbows, and firm, judicious step. Even her very garments seemed to partake of the prevailing character of their mistress. Her ruff always looked more sensible than any other body's. Her shawl sat most sensibly on her shoulders. Her walking shoes were acknowledged to be very sensible, 
and she drew on her gloves with an air of sense as if the one arm had been seneca the other socrates from what has been said it may easily be inferred that miss jacky was in fact anything but a sensible woman as indeed no woman can be who bears such visible outward marks of what is in reality the most quiet and unostentatious of all good qualities frederica bremer the swedish novelist whose novels have been translated into english german french and dutch had a style peculiarly her own her humour reminds me of a bed of mignonette with its delicate yet permeating fragrance one paragraph like one spray of that shy flower scarcely reveals the dainty flavour from the neighbours her best story and one that still has a moderate sale i take her description of franziska's first little lover-like quarrel with her adoring husband the bear let us remember miss bremer with appreciation and gratitude as one of the very few visitors we have entertained who have written kindly of our country and our homes the first quarrel here i am again sitting with a pen in my hand impelled by a desire for writing yet with nothing particular to write about everything in the house and in the whole household arrangement is in order little patties are baking in the kitchen the weather is oppressively hot and every leaf and bird seem as if deprived of motion the hens lie outside in the sand before the window the cock stands solitarily on one leg and looks upon his harem with the countenance of a sleepy sultan bear sits in his room writing letters i hear him yawn that infects me oh oh i must go and have a little quarrel with him on purpose to awaken us both i want at this moment a choir of writing paper on which to drop sugar cakes he is terribly miserly of his writing paper and on that very account i must have some now later all is done a complete quarrel and how completely lively we are after it you maria must hear all that you may thus see how it goes on among married people i went to my husband and said quite meekly my angel bear you must be so very good as to give me a choir of your writing paper to drop sugar cakes upon he in consternation a choir of writing paper she yes my dear friend of your very best writing paper he finest writing paper are you mad she certainly not but i believe you are a little out of your senses he you covetous sea-cat leave off raging among my papers you shall not have my paper she miserly beast i shall and will have the paper he i shall listen a moment let's see now how you will accomplish your will and the rough bear held both my small hands fast in his great paws she you ugly bear you are worse than any of those that walk on four legs let me loose let me loose else i shall bite you and as he would not let me loose i bit him 
Yes, Maria, I bit him really on the hand, at which he only laughed scornfully and said, Yes, yes, my little wife, that is always the way of those who are forward without the power to do. Take the paper, now, take it. She, ah, oh, let me loose, let me loose. He, ask me prettily. She, dear bear. He, acknowledge your fault. She, I do. He, pray for forgiveness. She, ah, oh, forgiveness. He, promise amendment. She, oh, yes, amendment. He, nay, I'll pardon you. But now, no sour faces, dear wife but throw your arms round my neck and kiss me. I gave him a little box on the ear, stole a choir of paper, and ran off with loud exultation. Bear followed into the kitchen, growling horribly. But then I turned upon him armed with two delicious little patties, which I aimed at his mouth, and there they vanished. Bear all at once was quite still. The paper was forgotten, and reconciliation concluded. There is, Maria, no better way of stopping the mouths of these lords of the creation than by putting into them something good to eat. I wish I had room for my favorite Irishwoman, Lady Morgan, and her description of her first rout at the house of the eccentric Lady Cork. The offhand songs of her sister, Lady Clark, are fine illustrations of rollicking Irish wit and badinage. At one of Lady Morgan's receptions, given in honor of fifty philosophers from England, Lady Clark sang the following song with great effect. Fun and Philosophy Hey for old Ireland, oh would you require land, where men by nature are all quite the thing, where pure inspiration has taught the whole nation to fight love and reason, talk politics, sing. Tis Pat's mathematical, chemical, tactical, knowing and practical, fanciful, gay, fun and philosophy, supping and sophistry, there's nothing in life that is out of his way. He makes light of optics and sees through dioptrics. He's a dab at projectiles, never misses his man. He's complete in attraction and quick at reaction by the doctrine of chances. He squares every plan in hydraulic so frisky the whole bay of biscay if it flowed but with whiskey he'd store it away fun and philosophy supping and sophistry there's nothing in life that is out of his way so to him cross over savant and philosopher thinking god help them to bother us all but they'll find that for knowledge tis at our own college themselves must inquire for beds, dinner, or ball. There are lectures to tire and good lodgings to hire to all who require and have money to pay, while fun and philosophy, supping and sophistry, ladies and lecturing fill up the day. So at the rotunda we all sorts of fun do, hard hearts and pig iron we melt in one flame. For if love blows the bellows, our tough college fellows will thaw into rapture at each lovely dame. There too, sans apology, tea, tart, tautology, are given with zoology to grave and gay. Thus fun and philosophy, supping and sophistry, send all to England home, happy and gay. 
from george eliot whose humor is seen at its best in adam bede and silas marner how much we could quote how some of her searching comments cling to the memory i've nothing to say again a piety my dear but i know very well i shouldn't like her to cook my victuals when a man comes in hungry and tired piety won't feed him i reckon hard carrots will lie heavy on his stomach piety or no piety i called in one day when she was dishing up mr tryan's dinner and i could see the potatoes was as watery as watery it's right enough to be spiritual i'm no enemy to that but i like my potatoes mealy you're right there tookey there's always two opinions there's the opinion a man has of him himself and there's the opinion other folks have on him there'd be two opinions about a cracked bell if the bell could hear itself you're mighty fond of craig but for my part i think he's welly like a cock as thinks the sun's rose on purpose to hear him crow when mr brooke had something painful to tell it was usually his way to introduce it among a number of disjointed particulars as if it were a medicine that would get a milder flavor by mixing heaven knows what would become of our sociality if we never visited people we speak ill of we should live like egyptian hermits in crowded solitude no i ain't one to see the cat walking into the dairy and wonder what she's coming after i have nothing to say again craig only it is a pity he couldn't be hatched over again and hatched different i'm not denying the women are foolish god almighty made em to match the men it's a waste of time to praise people dead whom you maligned while living for it's but a poor harvest you'll get by watering last year's crop i suppose diners like all the rest of the women and thinks two and two will come to make five if she only cries and makes bother enough about it put a good face on it and don't seem to be looking out for crows else you'll set other people to watch him for em too i took pretty good care before i said sniff to be sure she would say snuff and pretty quick too i want a going to open my mouth like a dog at a fly and snap it to again with nothing to swallow end of section two